time to play with pain, where sports and inaccuracy collide. Now, here's your host, veteran sportscaster, and the voice of the International Speed Fishing Championships, Jet Waterhouse. Oh, brother! Hello again, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today, one of the great film writers, wrote Men in Black and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. They got a sequel coming out called Bill and Ted Face the Music. Ed Solomon's here. We're going to be talking to Ed in like just a second. First, let me thank the folks that sponsor this podcast for real. Starbirds.com. Just Google it. Laugh yourself silly. Man, oh man, have we got a podcast. We got Advice Corner, Fiery Four, Pop Quiz. Great show. And as always, before we get to my guest, the incredible Ed Salomon, time for the Waterhouse Update by Shellactivism. Protect your radical thoughts with a single clear coat of Shellactivism. NBA, ESPN starts airing Michael Jordan documentary called The Last Dance. Said Robbie Robertson of the band, hey, I'm not dead yet, and I'm turning over my grave. It's a 10-part series, which is longer than Jordan's baseball career. Jordan bet the over at 11 episodes, so he's already down a million bucks. Phil Jackson did not watch. He said, there's no reception here in Tibet. Said Scotty Pippen, I'm open. Pass an episode to me. That wrap-up, sponsored by AC Penny. Dressing homicide detectives for over 60 years. NFL. Draft is only four days away. Sports fans panting like stray dogs eyeing a discarded pizza box. Possible trades. Bengals might deal Andy Dalton to Dancing with the Stars in exchange for new cheerleader outfits. Quarantine ESPN analyst Mel Kuyper. Oh, he's run out of hair grease. Now he has to broadcast from his home looking exactly like Gene Simmons from Kiss. That item is sponsored by Gentlemen Preferred Gentlemen, the all-gentlemen's gentlemen's club. UFC, Dana White said he's now going to host a fight on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' pool deck. Baseball may play all their games in Arizona televised with no fans, said the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, that's about how we do it. And finally, this week in sports history, the year 1887, the place, Paris, France. Georges Bouton won the world's first ever motor race on a steam-powered quadricycle. Said Larry King, it was fast. I bought one the very next day. This Waterhouse Update brought to you by the Marianas Trench Coat, featuring the deepest pockets in the business. We're coming right back with the great scriptwriter Ed Solomon on Play With Pain. After this, from someone paying real money, welcome back to Play With Pain. Finally! It's talk time. My guest today runs roughshod over the writer's keyboard like Marshawn Lynch going after the last N95 mask at a Home Depot. Great writer who penned Men in Black, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, a bunch of other stuff. You can find him on Twitter at Ed underscore Solomon. Please welcome Ed Solomon. Ed, how you doing today? Hey, Chad. It's really good to be on your show. I've been a big fan for a long time. Thank you very much. You know, not a lot of people say that. Hey, we're going to talk sports and career, but let's talk sports first. Saratoga, California, born and bred. Is that right? Well, I was, uh, yeah, I was born in Northern California, lived in Massachusetts for about seven years, then back to Saratoga, which is Northern Cal. 
That's right. So now you went to uh, Saratoga High, the Fighting Falcons, if I'm not mistaken. You look <laughs> like a, you look like a, a maybe a cross country runner who then said, "Oh, you know, this is not getting me chicks." <laughs> and that did you was, do any sports there? I played baseball, Chet. I was uh, I led in baseball, and uh, it was it was what I initially wanted to be when I grew up. So were you a Giants fan, for, uh, San Francisco Giants fan growing up? I was a Boston Red Sox fan, then a Giants fan, and an A's fan. And then I moved to L.A. and gradually became a Dodger fan. Well, everything in I L.A. In New York. Yeah, most things in L.A. happen gradually. It takes a good <laughs> 10 years to get anything. Now, what position did you play? Baseball. I was an infielder. I played shortstop, third base, and I also was a uh, pitcher in high school and in, and in Little League. Wow, you're sort of a buddy Bianca Lana, the utility man. You played everywhere. <laughs> I love that. And that actually wound up transferring to your showbiz career because you done a, you do a ton of stuff. You direct, you produce, you do everything. So now, uh, so, so uh, you were all over the, a, a Red Sox fan. East fan, do you have a commitment issue? I have a serious commitment issue and my baseball loyalty. Uh, has transferred to my relationship uh, loyalty. And in fact, I've, I've had to go into couples therapy for the whole shebang. The whole, <laughs> the whole thing. And so uh, now do you do the wave uh, in your relationships? I do it in couples therapy because uh, I'm in there with so many people <laughs> that it actually, uh, it actually makes some sense to people for some reason. Yeah. Uh, now, I am the guy in the right field of my own. I mean, I'm the guy in the bleachers of my own relationship, frantically trying <laughs> to start a wave so someone will notice him. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Beating a giant bass drum. Go, Ed. Go, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> now, you did uh, some martial arts, too, if I'm not mistaken. Didn't you used to do a little uh, something or Chet, what do you do? you employ the CIA? What is going on? How do you know all these things? I, did. I got I, uh, my stat man, Jimmy, has nothing to do with this COVID-19. Clearly, Jimmy has way too much time on his hands. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. In my twenties, I uh, I have never said this publicly, but yeah, I did I did taekwondo for for quite a long time. I did. Uh, when you're in a room, I could pretty much take everybody here. Did that ever cross your mind? It you know it, it crossed my mind before I was in martial arts, but I used the word "take" in a very different uh, meaning. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Now, uh, listen to me. Uh, let's launch right into comedy and all the other crap. Uh, uh, you were drawn to comedy. It, it was like a wake of a bad memory. It just kept coming at you. What what drew you uh, to comedy as a kid? Because something clearly uh, connected with you. And you just said, I, I got to go through this. You know, this is serious, actually. I think comedy and baseball came from the same place, which is, my dad, in 1947, pitched for the Boston Red Sox, double A. He, uh, wow. Yeah, he played with uh, um, Bobby Doerr and uh, not Joe DiMaggio, but Dom DiMaggio, Johnny Pesky. Wow. Um, my, in fact, uh, am I allowed to say uh, the F word on the show or should I bleep Yes. So no, my, go for it. My dad tells a, a story uh, when on the weekend in San Francisco, when when we lived there, when Joe DiMaggio died, my dad was walking. My dad lived in San Francisco at the time, and um, 
walking down the street, sees a guy he recognizes and he follows him for a few blocks, finally gets close enough. And he says, excuse me. He says, uh, you're Dom DiMaggio, right? And DiMaggio turns and goes, yeah, who are you? And my dad says, well, you, you wouldn't remember me. I, I, I played with you for a year in 1947, Mel Solomon. Uh, I was a pitcher. Uh, you know, we played with Johnny Pesky, Bobby Dore. He goes, oh, yeah? Well, fuck you. And he turns and walks away. <laughs> and my dad, who is not a poet, my dad said, the light changed two times as he stood there on the corner <laughs> dealing with it. But what I was saying, Chet, was baseball and comedy kind of came to me at the, in the same way, which is my dad was a huge Red Sox fan. And the best memories I had of young childhood when I lived in Sudbury, Mass., was driving in, parking in Newton, getting on the tee, taking it to Kenmore, going to Fenway, watching the Sox on a warm summer night. I could still name the 1967 lineup, I think. Wow. Boston Reds. Don't make me or I will. Um, Go for it. uh, (laughs) Let's see. Carl Yastrzemski, Reggie Smith in center. You had uh, Tony Cnigliero, who was beamed that year, replaced by Ken the Hawk Harrelson in right. First base, I want to say... George Scott, uh, Ooh, maybe base, Tater Scott, Mike Andrews at second base, Rico Petroselli, shortstop, Joe Foy. I want to say third base, unless I'm mixing Joe Foy and George Scott. But uh, behind the plate, last season of his career, Elston Howard, and of course Jim Longborg, twenty-two and nine that year, and Louis Tiant pitching as well. Wow, that clean sweep of the 67 Boston Red Sox lineup brought to you by Unpotable Water. The thirstier you are, the more potable it gets. So this was a dad thing connected you to both uh, baseball and comedy. That's right. My dad used to like to watch comedy, and I remember sitting laughing with him, and I remember telling him I wanted to be a writer at some point, and he worked for a company called Sylvania, and occasionally they had products in police TV shows. So one year, my dad went down to Los Angeles from Northern California to uh, supervise something or other. There was like a, a Sylvania device on some TV show. Uh, the Sylvania dad, death ray. It was the death ray. It was the death ray. They were and, pushing uh, that hard to use seasons. it on some people we knew. So he <laughs> uh, went down there. He got it. He brought it back. He um, that was pre that was how he became a supervillain. But that's for another show. Um, <laughs> He uh, he brought a script back, and I remember watching the show with my dad. Look, you know, looking at the script, and um, then we went to see some Woody Allen movies and some Monty Python movies and TV shows. And I was like, God, if I could figure out how to do this, I had a lot of high school friends who were really gifted. They weren't. Uh, they were. Um, actors, musicians, singers, and I didn't have any real talent. So I was like, maybe now I should pick writer so I can at least have some way to belong to this group of really talented people. It was the only thing no one else did, which is why I picked it, to be honest. And then you were like, but you were like, uh, like, uh, you were like Daryl Dawkins. You're like 19. Boom. Signed down Laverne and Shirley. Uh, 21, but yeah, that was a crazy time, Chet. I was clueless. I remember there was a, oh, I walked into that, you know, I'd gone, I had gone from being, um, a joke writer and writing for comedians along with a lot of friends of yours, Chet. Um, oh yeah. The old guys used to come out and watch me do the weekend at 
Oh yeah, some some people you know like really that. well, I think. Yeah, George um, Miller and Jimmy Walker and all those guys. That was the I mean, first JJ Dynamite to, Walker. I sold jokes to Jimmy Walker. That was my first uh, professional gig. Um, was well, sold a joke to him, a couple of jokes to him, and then George Wallace, and then Gary Shandling, and then you know a lot a bunch of people. And uh, Gary introduced me to a, a television producer named Mark Sacken, who came to see a play that I'd written at UCLA. And he hired me on Laverne and Shirley. And when I started on that show, it was crazy pressure. Um, Were you scared walking I in a room like that? Terrified. And, you know, I felt proud, right? You know, putting on a, you know, a shirt that had a collar to go to work, <laughs> a job. <laughs> sure. Going to a studio a lot, driving on, having a parking space, going to an office. And I remember in the first week, um, the head writer says to me, uh, every uh, day at three o'clock, we're going to do something called nap time because nap time is um, required because we're going to be under so much pressure that from three to three thirty, everyone is to take a nap and then resume at three thirty with energy and come back because we're going to be working super late nights. And I remember um, every once in a while after the show ended. Every few years, I'd get a residual. I got 60 bucks. I get 80 bucks. Sometimes I'd call the head writer and I'd say, hey, man, I just got a residual. I'm going to uh, take you to lunch. And once about 15 years ago, we're sitting having lunch and both of us uh, have become meditators in life. And I was uh, talking to him and I said, man, I wish I, I, I knew how to meditate because it would have come in really handy during nap time. And he's like, well, I'm sorry nap time and I said yeah nap time you announced it you came out you said we're doing nap time from 3 to 3 30 every day and every day I would go to my office at 3 try to sleep and I couldn't sleep I was too keyed up and I was too stressed and too anxious but you guys were all sleeping because when I got back to the table everyone had all their energy and they were really fresh and refreshed and they they you know their their naps had really worked and I wish I had meditated then because it would have been really great for nap time and he goes I still don't know what you're talking about I said you said, remember, you don't remember after lunch, you said all doors closed, nobody comes out, everyone takes a nap, and he looks at me and he goes, Ed, oh, Ed, we weren't napping, we were doing coke. And I spent the entire season lying on my back thinking I was getting fired, wondering why everyone was so refreshed after nap time. <laughs> <laughs> that anecdote brought to you by Bananas, the bananas guaranteed to ripen tomorrow. That <laughs> is uh, that is a killer anecdote. You mentioned a, a great couple of words in there, Gary Shandling, because uh, yeah. because he kind of came out of out of the Laverne and Shirley boom. You get hired on its Gary Shandling show, which That's is right. uh, had to be a unique experience. I love uh, Gary. He approached comedy like a whole different way. He almost approached it like drama. And then you just found the the, the funny in the dramatic moment. Kind of, it's looked to me. Gary would break a story in a way most similar to, like right now I'm working a lot with the director, Steven Soderbergh, who I admire greatly. I've noticed a similarity, and you wouldn't think it, between the way these two people help break story, which is, What's the truth? Where would this go? If this is what needs to happen, what would happen? What would really happen? Anytime you broke a story with Gary, even 
on its Gary Shandling show, which was arguably very thin at times, very sketchy at times. And I think half the time we made a really interesting, really unique show. And by half the time, I mean, not just half the episodes, but, but like half of half the episodes were really good. Half of another uh, 50% of the episodes were partially, you know, good and partially bad. And, and the rest were just terrible. I'm not sure that math works out, but I can see the chart in my own head, which is all that matters. That's all that matters because uh, yeah. none of my fans are good at math. <laughs> perfect then it did work yeah. perfectly. no so, we're still trying to work out the partial part <laughs> still, yeah um, that seems pretty vague mathematically <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to keep it that way um but we we didn't know what we were doing most of the time is the point but we had uh but but when breaking story with gary the ones where we broke that were the kind of coming out of emotional truths were the ones that worked the ones that we broke that came from the joke didn't work and Gary uh, on on its Gary Shandling show and then especially on Larry Sanders and then on this movie when Gary is and I didn't work on Larry Sanders I just worked on its Gary Shandling show but when Gary was breaking story in anything it was always about what's the truth of the moment what you broke it like it was a drama and I learned a lot that that way from him is that what gave you the confidence did that give you the confidence to slide from comedy into stuff that had some deeper roots like men in black is it's hilarious, but it also has heart and it has meaning. And for a complete kind of sci-fi thing, it's, it, it really is, is kind of based in reality because it's based in the emotions. It's, it did, did you feel like you got, so you got kind of, you got loose, you got sparring on the shambling stuff and that kind of taught you. And then, and boom, you felt a little more confident going into the other stuff. I appreciate that question. Um, I didn't feel confident as a writer in general until not that long ago. And that confidence is tempered with a very real belief. And I mean belief that it's very important to ride the line between confidence and lack of confidence in a healthy way. Meaning I don't believe in confidence. I believe in faith. I believe that you can have faith that you can figure it out. But once you get too confident, you lose your crit, your self-criticism. And I think that self-criticism is important in a healthy dose. So first of all, I would say, I don't think it was confidence that led me to that next step because I wasn't confident writing men in black. However, I have been very aware my whole career about the need to grow and having observed a lot of wonderful, wonderful comedy writers. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about here. You know, watching a lot of great comedy writers do, really great comedy but don't um but but don't let themselves evolve as writers because to me like look i was still young during men in black and i still conceived of men in black as a comedy i thought it was conceptually a comedy even though it had science fiction elements to it in fact i got into a very serious argument with one of the actors tommy lee jones my first meeting with him where he literally said to me it's either comedy or science fiction. Make up your mind, asshole. He, he was like, it's got to be one or the other. And I was like, Tommy, this isn't good enough science fiction to be a drama. It has to be a comedy. You need the, the leap of faith that the, the mood of comedy creates. You know, that's so, what Tommy Lasorda says to a lot of his pitchers, too. 
Make up your mind, asshole. <laughs> so you you got to be you got to be a little nervous at that point, but you you stand up yourself and you you think this you, I think this is both. I said it has to be both, and um, you know I got fired at a certain point for not making it a dramatic dramatic enough. Then I was hired back to turn it back into a comedy. So I felt like I did, to be honest, win that argument, so to speak, but. I think in general, it's it's my lack of confidence in my sense of humor that ha- that gave me the tools that forced me to get myself the tools, I guess, to 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 be able to do more dramatic stuff as I got older. And and part of that I don't think is legit is actual insecurity. I think it's an actual sense that it's hard. I think when you get older to really be consistently funny. It, it's not just that the world's sense of humor changes because if you have kids or if you live in the world and are open, I think your sense of humor can evolve with the world's sense of humor. It's just that it's harder to be funny for me as I get older. I can't write jokes as well. I can't get to the, it's not just that I can't get to the place in my own mind that I need to get. I can't get to the place energetically. I can't get the energy up that it takes to truly mine whatever's left of my sense of humor. So, Completely understandable, although I, w- I would suggest uh, just a two words. Uh, monkey testosterone. <laughs> Shoot it right into your eyeball. <laughs> I, took, I almost got a spit take out of you. Shoot it right into your eyeball. I and then the you're wrong good time for to take a three- sip of my tea. <laughs> <laughs> you're good for All about right, three days. Hold on one second. I happen to have some monkey testosterone right here. <laughs> Bam! Ah! <laughs> Jesus, that it fucking hurts. Yeah, it hurts. It stings for about an hour, but man, you're going to feel great right through Thursday morning. You're not even going to blink. Uh, listen, and I'm going to uh, be funny as hell. Uh, all right, folks. Advice Corner coming up with Ed Solomon. We're going to be right back after this uh, word from a real sponsor. All right, welcome back to Play With Pain. Finally, my guest here, Big Time Script. And in black wrote the Bill and Ted movies. It's time for Advice Corner. Actual takeaway from the great Ed Solomon. Eddie, I'm going to ask you uh, several questions. like, uh, And uh, just because you never know, uh, the kids out there, they're listening. They want and a little should, advice. Let me so. clarify on one thing before you do. I'm a co-writer of the Bill and Ted movies. Wrote them with my good friend, Chris Matheson. So, And, and are you still friends or did you ever get tired carrying him around your back? Um. Uh, yeah, we're good friends. We're still working together. That's impressive right there uh, for for a show business. Uh, the longest relationship I ever had in Los Angeles uh, was with my Toyota service rep. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to ride you that car this- for eight or ten months. That's a pretty long relationship for you. <laughs> Well, hey, that's a lot of one night stands back to back. Uh, all right. What's the trick to balancing family, but staying productive as a writer? Um, I learned the, the real lesson when I got divorced and felt under stress because I was trying to be a good parent and a good writer. And I felt both were, were struggling. And somebody, a very good, wise person said to me, and it changed my life. He said to me, 
you know you can use your writing as a break from the kids and you can use your kids as a break for the writing. In other words, I was feeling when I was writing that I should be with the kids and when I was with the kids, I should be writing. And that dovetailed with what was a relatively new meditation practice where one of the kind of main theses of this practice is, you know, fully focus on whatever you're doing at any given moment. So I found that by fully focusing on the kids, I was refreshed when I would go to my writing. And then by fully focusing on the writing, I was refreshed when I returned to the kids. And that's the best way that I have figured out up to here how to, how to do that. That's impressive. I do that with uh, announcing and drinking. Question number two. <laughs> you are one of the most focused drinkers I've, I've ever witnessed, Chad, I have to say. That, I mean, uh, yeah, ever... I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank Truly. you. It's like no one else is around. What, you know that feeling when the whole yeah. world falls away and you're just <laughs> glugging on whatever it is, a grain alcohol sometimes, Drano sure. I saw once, some, um, a cough syrup sometimes. It's, it's yeah, I've been getting those, uh, those uh, 55-gallon drums of Absolute at Costco. Those are good. Uh, I just uh, I stick a spigot and say, tip for when you've hit a wall in a script. Every writer, whether it's their first script or their, their hundreds, uh, tells me that they hit a wall at some point. What do you do? Do you, do you try to break through? Do you go over it? Do you go around it, underneath it? Do you even care about it? That's a great question. I have several things I do. One, I will write about the thing that I'm hitting a wall about, meaning I will literally handwrite, okay, and I will write, okay, okay, A Y, comma, I am struggling on this. I cannot figure out why I can't solve this issue. And I feel like it needs to be, and often that will break it through, just writing about it. That's one thing. A second thing is dedicated, not working. In other words, conscious, intentional, not working on it. So that if I'm really kind of hit a wall and can't figure something out and I, and maybe I've been trying for a few days even, or, or I just, I know in my body and I do know myself well enough to know when it's possible it could still come or when it's actually not coming this time. But let's say I'm in either of those states, it might not come or it's not coming and it's just not working. I will set intention for myself and then take time off. So what does that mean? I will say to myself, and you have to almost say it, maybe not out loud, but you have to form the words in your mind. You really do have to set an actual intention. I am going to stop now. And when I return on Tuesday at 10, or when I come back after the weekend, or sometimes it's shorter, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to go for a run. And when I come back, and, but usually it's longer than just a run. But you say to yourself, when I come back, the answer will be there. It is always there. But the answer is not what you think. It's not the solution to the creative problem. Sometimes the answer is, if you allow it, if you open yourself to it, the answer is you're asking the wrong questions. The answer is you're trying to be too clever. It doesn't always solve it, but it might right. tell you what the problem is. And so then I go to, okay, what's the truth here? Why would this really be here in this moment like we were talking about with gary yeah what um the the other thing is sometimes you need to talk it out with someone 
uh, that's another way to go. The panic, when I talked about confidence versus faith, to me, this is a key, this is the moment where that is illustrated. In other words, it ain't confidence because I am not confident I'm going to solve it. It's faith. Even though there is no evidence that I'm going to solve this, I know there's something good down there that's going to keep me trying and keep me trying. So you you kind of toss it in the back of your head and uh, kind of let your subconscious percolate on it for uh, for a little bit, because uh, I think your brains always work. That's how I came up with my Homer call. I uh, I couldn't come up with it, and I let it sit for about five days, and then it just hit me. That baby's hit back, back, back. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Twins win five two. It just popped in my head like that because I. That's your blue steel of Homer calls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what advice do you have for a writer who, th- uh, who what what do you do when you get notes from the studio or producers and, and you think to yourself, these are not good notes? Uh, how do you handle that in the notes meeting? You never tell the person you think they're not good notes because invariably when a note is bad, if it is actually bad, it will fall off the vine on its own if you give it enough air. Meaning, somebody gives you a note and you you know it doesn't work or you feel it doesn't work. And that's an important thing to distinguish, knowing it doesn't work and feeling it doesn't work. Because when you feel it doesn't work, usually it's your own ego. You're hurt because you're vulnerable. Somebody doesn't like something or they're giving you a note to change something in a way that you don't like it, so it scares you. When that happens, uh, your body reacts in a certain way that makes you think that person's an idiot. If you really, truly don't agree with it, the best thing for me, I have found for myself, is to ask some questions and let them keep talking. Because invariably, what they'll say, if you say something like, well, explain what you mean by that, or I think I understand that, but but can you unpack that a little, whatever. Right. Or you can often say, is it the intention that you're having trouble with or the execution? Because what I was trying to do was this and I did it like that. Is it the, what I was trying to do that was wrong? Or do you feel like it's the intent, you know, how I executed it that's wrong? That's you can ask great. any number of questions and let them talk. Almost all the time, if it's a bad note and it has enough airtime, it either changes. The person goes, actually, you know what? It's not that that I have a problem with. It's that thing that happens 50 pages ago that makes it seem like, and then you go, aha, or, or it evolves. Or they go, actually, you know what? It's not that. It's something else. But let's say you do that and they still have the bad note. What do you do? Don't reject it in the room. It does nobody any good. And the person it hurts the most is you. Why? On a personal level, just personally and emotionally, you have made, first of all, you have made whatever you're disagreeing about a bone of contention. You put a target on it. You put a spotlight on it, whatever metaphor you want to use. You put, you've featured now this moment in the script. And now everyone's going to be reading that moment in the script, wondering what you did, including the person who gave you the note. One. Two, 90% of the time, a person isn't giving a note on their own. They're with their boss or their underling. So if you disagree in the room, you have embarrassed them in front of their boss or their underling. Why is that bad? Well, you've made 
you've hurt someone's feelings, you've made an enemy, and you've made someone who needs to now prove that to be not true. So you've created more of a problem and more of a sticking point right. for yourself regarding this issue. Third, even if the person is just alone and it's you and them, you have to always remember that the prime thing they want more than anything else is to be considered a colleague. They want you to respect them and the way you want them to respect you. So what do you do? Let's assume you don't get, you don't agree with them. You say, let me give that some thought. And you go away and you give it thought, not fake thought. You actually give it thought. What does that do? It does two things for you. One, let's say you give it thought and you still can't make their note work. Call them back or you have a second meeting and you go, Hey, Chet, I've been thinking about what you were saying. Uh, and you know what? I was able to make X, Y, and Z work and A, B, and C. But when we got to F here, um, I still couldn't quite figure it out. I couldn't because blah, blah, blah. Or I still feel blah, blah, blah. And invariably they say, well, thank you for giving it the thought. Because that's what they really want is for you to really try it. They don't want you to, you know, spoon feed it back. Right. But to try it. And the other thing that happens, and this happens more often than you would like to think when you're alone in the privacy of your own house and you are giving a thought, you go, you spend like the first 20 minutes talking about what an asshole they are. And then you go, Oh, wait a minute. I see what they meant. Or, Oh, that doesn't work because of blah. And suddenly your script has just gotten better because you've actually thought about what they had to say. You're an idiot. If you don't listen to people's problems, with your script, you're also an idiot if you take their solutions whole cloth and just do them because you're not, you know. Right, right. That advice corner, and that was a hell of an advice corner, brought to you by UDrive, the app that lets you rent your own car to take you <laughs> wherever you want to go. Now, oh, this is very exciting. Yeah, I got Ed Solomon with me, one of the great script writers of all time. It's time for the Fiery Four. Ed, these are Oh, there, we have the sound effect this week. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Ed, these are sports takes hotter than Donald Trump's sun lamp. And I'm going to ask you, and then you, you shoot me an opinion. Fire number one. Wait, before you go, my caveat. I'm dating a, a woman who doesn't watch sports and have been for a while. And I haven't been watching a lot of sports. That's okay. These aren't that specific. Got it. Because uh, I don't actually know that much. Fire number one. <laughs> Saved should, by your ignorance. All right. Yes. That's <laughs> should pro sports try televising games with no fans? Is that is that an actual solution to coming out of the pandemic? It's worth a try. I, I think it is. I think it is worth a try. What the heck? What do you got to lose? Yeah. Uh, might as well. Concessions money, but that's about it. You can make a hot dog at home. Fire number two. The PGA, the golf people, said they're coming back in June with no fans. Uh, Now, you're a TV guy and a film guy, so they're not going to have fans on the golf course. Should the networks sweeten the soundtrack like a sitcom? Should they add little chuckles? Just add people going, shh. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) maybe. To make the non-sound, no, not in golf. Not in golf. You know what they could do? Here's my uh, just just 20 people around each green sitting like uh, six feet apart. 
uh, it'd be like a Lutheran picnic. Fighter number three, the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban, it keeps poo-pooing the notion that he might run for president. But what do you think? Should the guy run for president? Look, unlike a lot of my friends, I don't have a problem with a, a public figure or a wealthy public figure deciding they want to try to serve the country. I think in theory, that's a good idea, whether you're Carly Fiorina or Meg Whitman or whether you're Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg or even Donald Trump. If you have a social calling and you want to exercise it, great. I have a problem when it comes out of ego and I have a problem. Do I have a problem with people spending their own money? Not really. If you think it's in, you know, you have the right to do that. Would I support Mark Cuban? I doubt it unless he turned out to be, I'd have to hear what he had to say. Um, but in general, I think we have a, a lot of problems in our country with income disparity, and there are a lot of rights given and privileges, I should say, that 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 come off as rights uh, given to people who have a lot more money. It's getting worse and worse. Uh, in general, I'm not a big fan of the idea, but do I believe they have the right to? Yeah, he has the right to do that. Well, let's see what happens. Never know. Could be uh, could be as early as t- maybe 2024. And finally, fire number four. Which sport out of all the sports that are not going on right now, pro sports, even college sports, which sport do you miss the most? Baseball. Baseball, yeah, it's got to be for you. I want to watch. I don't care. I, you know what I also want? How about this now that we're, you know, not really allowed to have sports? Can we just get Vin Scully to just announce bullshit for a while? Sure. Listen to it. All I care is Vin Scully speaking. He can be, you know, he can be going off on a, I don't care what he's talking about, but maybe he could just announce stuff and I can listen to it. I used to put Vin Scully on sometimes in the background on Dodger games, even when I wasn't paying attention to the game, just because I loved him his voice and the way he spoke and the way he speaks about sports and people and this whole other persona comes through from it. Generosity of spirit, you know, it's like listening to Paul Desmond from the Dave Brubeck uh, quartet. He's got, he's got that (laughs) vocal thing going. That fiery four brought to you by Chillax, the laxative that's CBD delicious. Now I understand you may have a pop quiz for me. Uh, This is a, very exciting uh, portion of the show. That's where my guests asked me pop quiz. And uh, we got the great Ed Solomon wrote Men in Black, wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, got another one coming out soon, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, he co-wrote that with uh, his buddy, uh, Chris Gay. Uh, and uh, see, I paid attention. Uh, Chris, Chris Matheson, yeah. Oh, Matheson, yeah. I uh, like the old fighter, Buster Math. But that was Buster Mathis. Well, I'll, I'll put it all together uh, when I go on break. But meantime, uh, we got a theme song for this uh, for this segment. Listen to this. Boom, pop, pop quiz. Not bad. I, I'm ex- I'll, I'll I'll look for that in Bill and Ted face the music. Uh, very, very professionally rendered. Very. Yeah, and and low key, as the kids yeah. say. All right, throw them at me. I'm now 10, 91, and 3 in my last, uh, like, 105 uh, pop quizzes. But I'm on a roll. I'm 2, 8, and 1 in my last 10, 11. Ooh, good for you. All right, this is a true or false, and it's about me. All right. In 1985, for 45 minutes, I was the prime suspect in the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker Los Angeles mass murder case. True or false? True. You're correct. 
I just took a shot. That's a 50-50. <laughs> Although I, I will say this, uh, if I may be so bold as to use this term, you have the countenance of someone who might accidentally pull something like that off. <laughs> it was accidental. I was not in fact. <laughs> you didn't intend. Nice <laughs> what All happened right, was, I'm one and oh, I'm on a roll. Let me see if I can. You're doing uh, good. All right. right. And, and if you need me to explain it, I will. And if not, I'll just leave it hanging. And people can I, I say, yeah, uh, let the kids Google it. Let them, let them Google it. All right. Yeah, let them find it. All right. Number two. Uh, of the following, this is another uh, pop. Uh, this is another trivia quiz about me. That's fantastic. I'm doing well. So okay, who's of the of the following three? Which world leader's body have I not stood one foot away from? Mao Zedong. Ronald Reagan, Vladimir Lenin. Oh, brother, whose body? You didn't say alive or dead. So uh, that could be the key there with Lenin. Because uh, a lot of a lot of people don't know that uh, uh, Lenin's uh, kid brother, Tommy, uh, played in the Twins minor league system for a while. Uh, uh, good arm, no range though. They didn't have any range. Very little range. Yeah, very little. You can't play the pros. Anyway, I'm going to say Mao Zedong. Ronald Reagan. Oh, nuts! Wow! They they would trot out Mao Zedong once in a while. Happened to be in China when his body was on display um, and I waited for two hours in line. Like at a and Sephora? It, or where'd they have it on display? They had it at a Sephora. Yeah. You know, they, were, they were showing off a, a skin cream that he aged you. It was some remarkable. Um, wow. Yeah, I was in Red Square. And, uh, no, that I was in, uh, and then in in, um, in Moscow uh, was the body of Lenin. They did the right. same. Wow! I happened to luck out on both days, and we're there like on two entirely different trips in different decades. But uh, but saw both bodies. That's All right, All right, one and one. Here's the rubber question. Let's Here's see if I can pull you this baby out. You might know this. I think it's an easy one. That's, you know that's the, the kiss jump, of death. Uh, do you know the phrase "jump the shark"? I do. What television show does that phrase emanate from and what happened? Well, I believe the television show was uh, uh, Happy Days. And uh, it happened because uh, uh, Fonzie uh, was trying to do a stunt where he actually jumped uh, a shark on his motorcycle in the fashion of Evil Knievel. Or he was attempting some stuff like that. Okay, you know, Chad, I I don't know whether to go to the judges on this because you were so right and then over talked it and got it got it wrong. Is this one of those situations where I have to listen to the note and then go home and <laughs> and swear for twenty minutes and then you were so it? right, but he jumped it while water skiing. And if you'd only stopped instead of honestly, Chad showed off your knowledge. No, I said something like. I said something like. All right, so I'm going to have to go to your producer and ask whether something like whether whether water skiing is something like a motorcycle. Well, it's in the water, and there's a shark in the water, and he's uh, dealing with water and a shark in either a scenario. Well, Chet, I'm going to have to leave that to you. You're going to have to decide whether you were uh, you came in two eight and one and are now. Uh, oh, I'm three eight and one. There's no doubt. Three 
Well, well, wait a minute. In the, do you consider this? You were two eight and one going into this. Yeah, I'm three eight and one now because see what will happen is we'll just edit out that part that was wrong, <laughs> and it'll it'll sound like I'm completely right. Congratulations! I'm glad I can be part of your your, your comeback. <laughs> I'm really thrilled. I don't care how it happened. I'm, I'm happy to participate in uh, what I would consider a, an unethical display of, uh, oh, journalism. Well, but, uh, you know, compared to the Houston Astros, that's a drop in the bucket. That no, pop that quiz uh, brought to you by Talcoholics. Get addicted to dryness with Talcoholics. Last question uh, before we get to the plugs. I, I saw you're a website. Beautiful website. Yeah, the, the, you got a picture right on the front of your website. Oh, it I looks like it. you. I, been on my, I don't even know how to manipulate my website. I had it oh, set wow. up a couple of years ago, and I haven't done a thing since then. Ah, forget it then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my guest today, the amazing Ed Solomon. Follow Ed on Twitter at Ed underscore Solomon. Wear your formal bandana around your mouth and go hit the theaters this fall or winter for Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, Ed Solomon, Ed, thank you so much for coming on. Chet, thank you for having me. Follow me on Twitter at Chet Waterhouse. Follow my comedian buddy at Real Jeff Cesario. Visit jeffcesario.com for all sorts of stuff. He's got an album coming out called What Was I Thinking? Coming out this June. Support my sponsor, uh, that uh, that uh, StarburnsAudio.com. Uh, Those guys are funny. If you want more of me this weekend, I'll be calling the action at the Under Armour Bikini Factory as they convert to making masks. This is Chet Waterhouse reminding you to play with pain.